Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 2 of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Charles Lindbergh. Now let's continue with our story about Charles Lindbergh. Lindbergh's negative life spiral began on the evening of March 1, 1932. Anne and Charles Lindbergh actually spent most of their time at Dwight Morrow's estate at Next Day Hill in Englewood, New Jersey. They'd only spent a little more than a dozen weekends at Highfields, their own home in Hopewell, New Jersey. Uncharacteristically, the Lindberghs decided to spend the week of February 29th in Hopewell, The later explanation for this was that Anne was concerned because her son was seemingly becoming more attached to his nursemaid, Betty Gow, than he was to her, learning to say Betty's name before the word mommy. Anne Lindbergh was hoping to spend some quality time with her son, away from the rest of the Morrow family and in the solitude of their own remote home. Much has also been made of the fact that Charles Lindbergh canceled a speaking engagement at the Waldorf Astoria, intended for alumni of NYU. Lindbergh's punctilious approach to such matters was confused by a date erroneously entered by a secretary after the dinner was rescheduled twice. As Lindbergh did not look forward to such events, having endured hundreds of similar affairs since his flight and having to drive two hours to Hopewell in a rainstorm, he begged off and sent his apologies. Arriving home by 8.30, he had dinner with his wife, Earlier in the evening, Anne and Betty Gow had spent a great deal of time getting the Lindbergh baby ready for bed, administering medicines and ointment for a cold, and pinning him under a blanket so that he would not throw it off in his sleep. The child fell asleep very quickly, and Anne Lindbergh even entered the room to retrieve a household item after her dinner with her husband. However, not wanting to disturb the child, she did not turn the light on. At about 9 o'clock, Betty Gow returned to the baby's nursery to routinely check on the child. Entering the nursery, she immediately noticed that the room was inordinately cold, despite a space heater that was on. Without turning on the light, she reached into the crib, only to discover that Charlie was not there, despite his blanket still being pinned into place. Initially sensing that Charles Lindbergh Sr. might be playing an all-too-frequent practical joke, Betty went to the master bedroom where Anne Lindbergh was reading in bed and inquired if she or her husband had the baby. While Anne got up and ran to the nursery, Betty quickly went downstairs to the study where Lindbergh was reviewing some paperwork and asked him if he had the child. When he shook his head no, she told him that the boy was missing from his bedroom. He quickly ran upstairs to the nursery only to find his wife checking the closet for any sign of the infant. It was then that both parents noticed that one of the windows was wide open. Lindbergh yelled to one of the male household staff to call the police and then grabbed a rifle and ran down the driveway. However, in the darkness, he quickly went back to the house and the nursery 
where muddy footprints were present on a suitcase under the window. On a nearby radiator, Lindbergh noticed an envelope, but realizing that fingerprints might be obtainable from the paper surface, he left it exactly where it was. It took only minutes for the Hopewell chief of police, Harry Wolf, and several other policemen to arrive at the Lindbergh home. They immediately called the New Jersey State Police, who quickly set up roadblocks at strategic checkpoints, including the main routes into New York City, as well as other major New Jersey highway routes. State police investigators arrived on the scene and within minutes spotted two sets of footprints in the vicinity of the house, one male, one female. The male prints led 75 feet away from the house where a wooden ladder was found on the edge of the dense woods that surrounded the Lindbergh home. This ladder in three sections was constructed out of different pieces of lumber and folded together, the bottom rung broken. State policeman Joseph Wolf, no relation, then went inside to inquire of the women present if any of them had been outdoors, all responding negatively. This indicated to police that a woman was involved in the kidnapping, and this information was transmitted statewide. While additional state troopers poured onto the property, one of the last to show up was the acting director of the state police, Norman Schwartzkopf who asked Colonel Lindbergh if he had any idea who might be behind the kidnapping, the aviator telling him he had no clue. A criminalist quickly determined that the envelope left on the radiator, which turned out to be a ransom note, had no liftable prints either on the envelope or the interior piece of paper. It read, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making any ding public or for the police, the child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holds. Although the note contained numerous misspellings that indicated only a cursory grasp of English, it did have a symbol which could be used to verify the authenticity of future communications. Two interlocking circles with three symmetrical holes punched through the paper. Quickly, investigators set up headquarters in the estate's garage, and while Lindbergh was already notorious for disliking media attention and believing it to be intrusive, he surprisingly stopped the press from being banned from his residence, believing that public awareness of the crime might help in retrieving his infant son. Unfortunately, the day after the kidnapping, as word got out to the public at large, numerous individuals made the trek to the secluded area of Lindbergh's house, wandering through the woods, leaving cigarette butts, footprints, and debris that could only hinder the investigation and destroy any additional clues. Initial police interviews of the neighbors turned up repeated stories of strange vehicles in the vicinity of the Lindbergh home observations that prompted police to conclude that more than one individual was involved, and the kidnappers also included a female. Typically, separate from the police investigation, Lindbergh himself assembled a group of advisors and attorneys to attempt to make personal contact with the kidnappers. He also forbade police from interviewing any of his servants, considering himself to be the final word on their good character and believing that they couldn't possibly be involved in such a betrayal. 
This only made police more suspicious, especially after they determined that Betty Gao had a Norwegian boyfriend, which might explain the improper ransom note spelling and grammar. And this boyfriend, Red Johnson, had actually phoned the Lindbergh home at 8.30 on the night of the kidnapping. State police lead investigator Arthur Keaton asked Hartford, Connecticut police to detain and question Johnson, who was found with a milk bottle in the back seat of his car an unusual beverage choice for a grown man. When Johnson was officially transferred to New Jersey, the newspapers had a field day claiming that Betty Gow's brother was a member of Detroit's Purple Gang, they were not even related, had an extensive criminal record in Canada and Seattle, both locations where she had never even traveled, and all but declaring Johnson and Gow to be the ringleaders of the abduction. Although Johnson's alibi for the night of the kidnapping was ultimately determined to be ironclad, and the phone call in question came from the Morrow household in Englewood at a time that precluded his participation in any crime two hours away. As an illegal alien, he was quickly deported. The result of this fiasco was a growing distrust of the police and a greater determination on the part of Lindbergh himself to investigate and find both the kidnappers and his child on his own. The aviator was further outraged when he discovered that Schwarzkopf had secretly placed a tap on phone lines located at the Lindbergh home, the aviator subsequently excluding the police official from any of his strategy sessions with his own team of investigators and lawyers. This relationship did not improve with the arrival of a second letter on March 5th. Dear Sir, we have warned you, note to make any ding public. Also notify police, now you have to take consequences. This means we will halt the baby until everything is quiet. It is really necessary to make a world affair out of this or to get your baby back as soon as possible. Now we have to take another person to it and probably have to keep the baby for a longer time as we expected. The kidnappers also raised their cash demand to $70,000. This was surprisingly problematic for Lindbergh because much of his wealth was tied up in aviation project investment or aviation-related stocks, which were depressed in a depression-affected stock market. Dwight Morrow had died of a stroke in 1931, but his wife could have easily lent or paid the married couple the difference. But the proud Lindbergh decided to access a line of credit through J.P. Morgan. Efforts to locate the child or even set up legitimate communications with the abductors was hindered by any number of oddballs, supposed mystics, and petty crooks, all approaching Lindbergh's inner circle with claims of specific knowledge or access directly to the kidnappers. Amidst this confusion and the general chaos of a media frenzy and law enforcement failing to get any sort of investigative traction, a third letter arrived with the appropriate symbol signature. The letter reiterated the demand for $70,000 and told Lindbergh to acknowledge the receipt of the letter by placing an ad in the New York American Personals column. An indication of Charles Lindbergh's helplessness and naivete was the involvement of John F. Condon a 74-year-old retired school principal and community activist who gave an interview to the Bronx Home News, a newspaper popular in the borough. In it, he stated how badly he felt about the kidnapping and offered himself as an intermediary between Lindbergh and the kidnappers. After he received a letter from an individual claiming to be the kidnapper, Condon called the Lindbergh home in New Jersey. 
One of Lindbergh's advisors, Robert Thayer, picked up the phone and was about to dismiss Condon when the 74-year-old mentioned that the signature to his letter had a strange but distinctive group of circular markings and hole punches on the bottom of the paper. Thayer then arranged for Condon to come to Hopewell, New Jersey, to show the letter to Lindbergh's chief attorney and former assistant secretary of war, Henry Breckinridge. Meeting in the middle of the night at a diner, Condon, who did not own an automobile, was driven to southern New Jersey by two friends. Condon did little to instill confidence by asking to be conveyed to the infant's nursery, where he prayed for several moments and then insisted upon meeting Mrs. Lindbergh despite the early morning hour. Nevertheless, the letter he received and subsequently produced was not only judged authentic, but also had instructions for next steps for the Lindbergh family. And with no other options to pursue, the inner circle agreed to involve the quirky Condon. Once again, the letter called for an ad in the New York American acknowledging the receipt of the communication. Condon put the ad in the paper as directed and signed it Jaffsey, an acronym of his initials to keep his identity from the press. Several days later, he received a letter at his Bronx home directing him to a series of other mail drops that finally led to the Bronx's Woodlawn Cemetery. Driven there by another friend, upon entrance to the cemetery, he was waved down by a man fluttering a white handkerchief. A lengthy conversation ensued, this man introducing himself as a Scandinavian named John. Condon was adamant that no money would be exchanged until there was some proof delivered that John actually had the child. The Lindberghs told Condon to ask for the child's Dr. Denton sleeping attire, and the meeting concluded with John's agreement to be in touch with a promise to produce the infant's clothing. One spontaneous question did arouse both Condon's horror and suspicion. John's spontaneous and heavily accented comment, What if the baby is dead? Will I burn for that? Several days later, Condon did receive a child's sleeping suit in the mail, which was pronounced genuine by the Lindberghs. But the postmark was almost three days after the meeting, and Condon came to the conclusion that this time gap was the result of the kidnappers returning to the grave and retrieving the garment, which was freshly laundered, before it was mailed. Condon kept this opinion to himself, but vowed to insist upon seeing the child alive before passing any money. It was not until March 31st that Cemetery John agreed to another meeting. It took place on April 2nd, this time Lindbergh packing a 38 caliber pistol personally driving Condon with a box containing $70,000 in bills that were sprinkled with gold certificates provided by agents of the U.S. Treasury who painstakingly recorded the serial numbers of every bill of the ransom payment. Again, a series of letter drop notes instructed Condon to meet at St. Raymond Cemetery, Lindbergh expressly telling the police to stay away from any meeting and that he would handle the exchange himself. After letting Condon cool his heels at the cemetery gate, the kidnapper then yelled from the interior of St. Raymond's and after getting the 74-year-old's attention, entered into a brief discussion. Condon, unable to stop from meddling in the process, told Cemetery John that he was only getting the original 50000 an impulsive assertion that could have blown up the deal, but the criminal quickly agreed after being assured that the money was in a nearby car. 
Condon then returned to the car, told Lindbergh about the reduced amount, and the aviator quickly removed a parcel containing the additional $20,000. Incredibly, Charles Lindbergh not only agreed to hand over the money without seeing his son in the flesh, he agreed to accept a letter that supposedly explained his child's whereabouts and even agreed to the kidnapper's demand to not open the letter for six hours. Eventually, he consented to Condon's insistent demands to open the letter. It read, The boy is on the bode Nelly. It is a small bode, 28 feet long. Two person are on the bode. The are innocent. You will find the bode between Horseneck Beach and Gayhead on Elizabeth Island. Four men, Lindbergh, Condon, Breckenridge, and Treasury Agent Elmer Irie, raced to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and a Sikorsky seaplane that Breckenridge borrowed from an acquaintance, with Lindbergh having brought the child's blanket, diapers, and baby bottle, got into the air and headed for Cape Cod. Along the way, Elmer Irie berated Condon. The $20,000 packet had contained numerous $50 gold certificates, the most easily identifiable banknotes in the ransom payment. Conversely, Lindbergh was upbeat, thinking that his nightmare was about to conclude. The Coast Guard and Navy were also involved, employing a veritable blockade upon the entire region. Any ship that came close to the description of the Nelly was boarded and searched to no avail, and it eventually became apparent that no such boat existed. With both darkness and the increasing realization that he not only did not have his son— but that he had been swindled out of $50,000, Lindbergh landed on Long Island, a frustrated and angry man. Not only was the investigation at a dead end, but many of Lindbergh's advisors were now also unwilling to continue to be involved. Lindbergh's continued refusal to work closely with law enforcement and the inability to even utilize sound judgment and common sense had alienated his inner circle. The press continued to have a field day, Frenzied criticism of John Condon blared from the tabloids, some suggesting that he might even be involved. The Lindberghs, having been subjected to all sorts of inaccurate journalism and intrusive behavior, became entirely embittered with the press. Any number of con men still repeatedly contacted the family, claiming to know the exact whereabouts of the child, information that they would reveal if they received additional ransom money. Lindbergh actually sporadically engaged in negotiations with some of these communicants, he and his wife still clinging to the hope that their child was still alive. But they were reluctant to pay any additional money, and these interactions went nowhere. These charades continued until May 12, 1932, when a truck driver's assistant named William Allen wandered 35 feet into the woods near Mount Rose, New Jersey. Both he and the driver of a timber truck had parked on the side of the road about four and a half miles southeast of, of the Lindbergh estate and were making a pit stop in the underbrush when Allen discovered a partially buried, obviously dead infant. Police arrived quickly and investigators were able to identify the badly decomposed remains from a custom-made undershirt sewn by Betty Gow that was still attached to the body. With Charles Lindbergh prompted by rumors, sailing off Cape May, New Jersey, in another search for a boat containing his child, it was left to Norman Schwarzkopf to break the news to Ann Morrow at Highfields. 
Both the child's pediatrician and Betty Gao identified the child personally at a nearby funeral home. But upon his arrival, Charles Lindbergh also insisted on a personal identification. The child was then cremated, the family deciding that a funeral and cemetery headstone would evolve into a media circus that they wanted to avoid. Already a carnival atmosphere had erupted near the location of the body's retrieval. Eventually, gruesome photos of the child's corpse taken illicitly, most likely with the cooperation of one of the doctors who performed the autopsy, began to emerge, a final indignity that especially embittered Charles Lindbergh. He resolved to immediately vacate Highfields, and he and his wife moved to the Morrow household at Next Day Hill. The police, now clearly involved in a murder investigation, aggressively turned their attention to servants in the Morrow household, convinced that the crime was an inside job. There were 32 full-time workers employed as household staff, and the police thoroughly investigated several of the more plausible suspects. One maid named Violet Sharp was continually inconsistent with her explanation for her whereabouts on the night of the kidnapping. She also reluctantly admitted to calling a reporter at the Daily News and selling him information about the family and household reaction to the kidnapping. According to the mores of a faithful servant, a transgression almost as bad as being involved in the crime itself. Fainting several times during interviews that included Norman Schwarzkopf, upon a request to come to the state police barracks for further questioning, she fled quickly to her room and ingested some solution used to polish silver. It contained potassium cyanide, and she died in a matter of minutes, the Lindberghs returning from privately and secretly, tossing their son's ashes into the Atlantic Ocean to a household now racked by virtual hysteria. Within days, several individuals came forward to establish that Sharp had harmlessly spent the evening of the kidnapping at a nearby bar and grill and was upset about her fiancé, another Morrow household employee, finding out about her other dates, as well as the Daily News betrayal. Sharp, a British subject, was sensationalized in the British press, who blamed New Jersey police for a high-handed, potentially brutal investigation. They were depicted as incompetents now desperately trying to pin the kidnapping on anyone they could intimidate. And in any case, Mrs. Morrow brusquely notified New Jersey investigators that there was to be no further investigation of her staff and her social stature ensured that her wishes were respected. The entire Morrow family then took off to Europe and Charles and Ann Lindbergh decided to return to Highfields. The only major security upgrade was the purchase of a large German shepherd named Thor that presumably would do a better job of sounding an alarm than the fox terrier present on the night of the kidnapping. In August, Anne gave birth to a son named John, and the couple tried to return to some feeling of normality. Although participation in social events with friends and colleagues usually required literal disguises, her subsequently published diaries from this period indicate that Anne Lindbergh was deeply unhappy, her husband stoic and not particularly receptive to deep discussion about anyone's feelings. In fact, the kidnapping became a taboo subject within the Lindbergh household for the rest of his life. He seems to have spent much of this time period attempting to get various law enforcement agencies involved in finding the kidnappers of his child, a topic of zero interest to his wife. In July of 1933, the couple returned to the air, 
flying over an infrequent route over Greenland in a venture coordinated with Pan American Airways in an attempt to chart potential commercial air routes that continued throughout Europe with Anne as co-pilot and returned to the U.S. via Brazil and the Caribbean. After an ill-fated attempt to move to a Manhattan high-rise, 1934 found the Lindberghs back at Next Day Hill. Although law enforcement had attempted to track down various leads associated with occasional appearances of Lindbergh ransom bills and gold certificates, these came to nothing until September 15, 1934. An individual driving a 1930 Dodge automobile paid for a little less than a dollar's worth of gasoline with a $10 gold certificate. There had been a great deal of publicity concerning gold certificates and the Lindbergh case, but by this time, the cashier at the gas station was more focused on being able to protect himself if questioned as to the origin of such a bill. He dutifully wrote down the license plate number of the Dodge. The bill eventually made its way to a local commercial bank where an alert teller identified it as part of the missing ransom money. The license plate on the automobile was traced to a car owned by a Bruno Richard Hopman who lived at 1279 East 222nd Street, Bronx, New York. Hopman was arrested on September 19, 1934, married when his wife Anna returned to their apartment from an errand and saw her husband in handcuffs. He spoke to her in German, claiming that the police were investigating a misunderstanding involving a gambling issue. Entire volumes have been written about the guilt or innocence of Bruno Richard Hopman. Even the most determined conspiracy theorist would have to deal with some problematically incriminating evidence involving the German immigrant. At the time of his arrest, he was found with another ransom $20 gold certificate in his billfold. The banknote folded into an eighth of its size, a characteristic of many of the already recovered Similarly creased Lindbergh bills, a pair of shoes found in his home, had been purchased with another Lindbergh 20. He spoke with a heavy German accent, was a German immigrant with a criminal record for robbery involving a burglary using a ladder in his home country and had already been previously deported from the U.S. After his arrest, he was positively identified by John Condon as Cemetery John and also a dead ringer for the composite sketch assembled after the two met face-to-face. A search of the garage next to his house by the FBI unearthed over $14,000 in additional identifiable ransom money. This money was concealed beneath lumber and placed inside of a metal gasoline can. John Condon's phone number was written in pencil on a barely visible molding of a wall inside of a closet. Wood from the ladder was matched precisely to a floorboard in Hopman's apartment, and Hopman's occupation involved carpentry. This evidence was provided at trial by Arthur Kohler, a director and expert from the U.S. Forest Service. Hopman stopped working after the kidnapping and began speculating in the stock market. Several other eyewitnesses, including a cab driver who transported one of the ransom notes, a movie theater cashier, and the gas station attendant who interacted with an individual who passed them Lindbergh ransom notes, testified that it was Hopman. Handwriting analysis conducted at FBI headquarters found both consistent misspellings and distinctive patterns in Hopman's previously written handwriting samples and the numerous ransom notes. 
After additional analysis, Kohler also maintained that lumber from the latter retrieved from the Lindbergh estate compared exactly with wood seized from the attic of the suspect's home and also contained square nail holes that matched the same unusually shaped nails found in the attic as well. Hoffman also began making small deposits of silver dollars in several separate bank accounts, the possible result of laundering ransom bills. He also spent lavishly on new furniture, expensive binoculars, a rifle, and a large radio that cost over $600, all purchased without any discernible income. Still, State Attorney General David Wilentz had to deal with some major problems concerning Hoffman's prosecution. Wilentz, who had never tried a case of any magnitude, had to explain both Hoffman's motive for the kidnapping and also explain how Hoffman could have easily pulled off such a crime without any accomplice. Although behind the scenes, many law enforcement figures believe that Hoffman at least had some help with the crime, including Norman Schwarzkopf, tabloid media and the public was demanding the speedy trial of a defendant that was believed to be both utterly guilty and evil. With no ability to produce any accomplices and with Hoffman refusing to cooperate, it left the prosecution no choice but to try and convict Hoffman as a murderer who acted alone. Wilentz also was intent on showing that Hoffman was responsible for murdering the child. Kidnapping by itself was not necessarily a capital crime. And if accomplices were involved, reasonable doubt as to who actually killed the child might prevail. Wilentz, understanding the impact that a successful prosecution would have on his political ambitions, pressed forward with the prosecution, which began before a packed courthouse and national audience on January 2, 1935. Despite his law enforcement skepticism, Charles Lindbergh personally believed that Hoffman alone was responsible and was prepared to testify that it was the defendant's voice he heard when delivering the ransom money at St. Raymond's. Behind the scenes, he remained extremely influential, public officials reluctant to buck such a formidable public figure. Because a sloppy autopsy was inconclusive about whether a massive skull fracture or a small hole possibly caused by a bullet was the infant's cause of death, Wilentz was able to introduce the theory that the kidnapper slipped when a step of his shoddy ladder broke under his weight, causing him to drop the child, who then fatally fell onto slate paving stones below. As a bullet was never found, a gunshot as a potential cause of death was not pursued in court. Wilentz effectively piled up the circumstantial evidence, and in a practically hysterical environment, Hoffman's prospects appeared grim. The defendant did little to help himself with repeated guttural outbursts, calling witnesses liars in both English and German, his wife also occasionally joining in this behavior. Hoffman's alcoholic defense attorney, Edward J. Big Ed Riley, also was rather ineffectual, his fee paid by a New York newspaper in exchange for exclusive access to Anna Hoffman during the trial. The defense explanation keyed on an individual named Isidore Fish, who supposedly returned to Germany in the winter of 1933, but not before handing Hoffman a shoebox at a going-away party given by the Hoffmans. Fish told Hoffman not to open the sealed box, and the defendant complied, despite the fact that Fish owed him money. Isidore, seriously ill with tuberculosis, then left for his native Leipzig 
where he died four months later on March 29, 1934. Hoffman claimed that he never opened the box until September 1934 when a leaky pipe damaged the container severely and he then discovered its contents, approximately $14,000. As Fish owed him money from unsuccessful business deals concerning Fish's fur business, Hoffman felt that spending some of these funds was perfectly reasonable. However, this explanation did not refute the testimony of the movie house cashier, who testified that Hoffman paid for his ticket with a ransom bill a full month before the supposed shoebox discovery. On February 13, 1935, the case went to the jury, the scene outside the Flemington, New Jersey courthouse resembling a carnival with thousands of bystanders frequenting hot dog and souvenir stands, the crowd eventually becoming a boisterous mob demanding a guilty verdict and death sentence. By late evening, the jury complied, finding Hoffman guilty and sentencing him to death without a recommendation of leniency. Internationally, the trial was perceived as grotesque, and many prominent American publications concurred, calling the tabloid frenzy and distortion everything from behavior that needed legal correction to a precursor of the fall of Western civilization. After the verdict to friends and acquaintances, Charles Lindbergh frequently repeated the circumstantial evidence that was presented during the case, unfortunately sounding much like a man eager to convince himself. Both he and his wife attempted to return to their life prior to the kidnapping and writing a well-received book about the couple's flight to China and Japan over the Arctic and Charles continuing an ongoing scientific collaboration with medicine Nobel laureate Alexis Carell on a mechanical device used to facilitate processes related to organ transplants, a rapidly growing field of medical experimentation. Lindbergh also continued his work with Pan Am and other aviation concerns, but the couple's ability to move on with their lives was hindered by tabloid newspapers continuing to especially harass their second child, John, who was unable to even attend a local nursery school without hordes of photographers practically running him off the road. Not trusting any of the servants at day's end, Lindbergh took to, during playtime, placing the child in a large metal cage, watched over by a private detective with a sawed-off shotgun. Lindbergh's increased discomfort with living at his mother-in-law's estate precipitated a radical, unilateral decision. Typically, without discussing it in advance with his wife, he announced that the family was moving to England. And Lindbergh was actually relieved, also wanting out of both the tense household and hoping to escape the American media glare, especially after Hoffman's appeal was rejected and the impending execution would precipitate even more media hysteria. The Lindbergh's expatriate excursion coincided with an investigation of the Hoffman case by the governor of New Jersey, Harold Hoffman, who claimed to be motivated by a desire in such an important case to act with the utmost integrity to ensure a just and accurate resolution of the case. Hoffman was a political rival of David Wilentz, and his inquiry was actually an attempt to impeach the Attorney General's credibility, understanding immediately that proving incompetence on the part of the police would be a fundamental part of any such inquiry. Norman Schwarzkopf stonewalled the investigation. The FBI also refused to aid in revisiting the case, and despite 
some bizarre twists and turns involving allegations concerning an attorney named Paul Wangle's alleged involvement in the murder and a signed confession, a controversy possibly manufactured deliberately by Hoffman. Hoffman's two separate requests for clemency were denied, and he was executed in the electric chair on April 3, 1936, allegedly refusing a last-minute offer to confess and name any accomplices in exchange for a life sentence. The Lindberghs remained in Britain despite Hoffman's execution and working on her second book recounting additional aviation adventures with her husband and giving birth to another son named Land in May of 1937. Having separated himself from his business associates in New York, Lindbergh spent most of his time exhorting his wife, who he believed to have substantial literary talent, to begin the great novel he felt she was capable of. Alexis Carell continually requested that Lindbergh return to the States, a quirky character who openly discussed such topics as eugenics and the use of animals in his transplant work. He understood that Lindbergh's collaboration was essential to attract additional funding for work that was considered scientifically on the fringe. Lindbergh refused, stating that his family should not be subjected to harassment and or physical harm. The aviator's lack of direction was interrupted by a request from the American military attaché in Berlin, inquiring as to whether Lindbergh would be interested in an inspection of German civil and military facilities, a request prompted by an invitation from Hermann Goering himself. Both the American and German governments had covert motivation to suggest such a venture. The U.S. would be able to get an unprecedented first-hand look at German military equipment, and Germany would have the prestige of its political leaders hobnobbing with an international mega-celebrity, who they might even be able to manipulate politically possibly even aware of some of Lindbergh's personal attitudes regarding race, ethnicity, American politics, and culture. In fact, one of Lindbergh's first public appearances in Germany was his attendance at the opening day of the 1936 Berlin Summer Olympics as a guest in Hermann Goering's box, a participation that raised critical eyebrows in the U.S. press. But Lindbergh also gave a very visible speech in which he decried the development of aviation as a weapon of war, contrary to the wonderful and peaceful potential of flight before its military incorporation, an address perceived as a criticism of Germany in particular, the country very visibly developing a strong military air force. But Lindbergh, having visited the Soviet Union and repulsed by its repressive system and poor standard of living, expected to be similarly disdainful of Germany's fascist environment. Instead, he personally found an industrious, technologically advanced, culturally sophisticated society, which matched his own Scandinavian outlook and heritage. He also was protected from hordes of invasive media, Lindbergh perhaps not grasping that this was because the regime had complete control of this entity. Like many Americans, Stalin, having already murdered tens of millions of his own people, the Nazis were perceived by many in the U.S. as a bulwark against the scourge of communism consuming all of Western Europe. In this outlook, Lindbergh, a staunch anti-communist, was not alone. Ironically, although it was most likely a German who had caused him personal harm and suffering, Lindbergh also perceived American society based on its tabloid media and vapid popular culture 
as a community in decline, as opposed to Germany, again, not an uncommon viewpoint among some American intellectuals and the economic elite. In fact, among many politically well-connected wealthy individuals, Lindbergh, whose opinions ran counter to the New Deal progressivism of Franklin D. Roosevelt, was frequently mentioned as a potential opponent of the president in the 1940 election. Lindbergh, deeply patriotic, did provide as much technical and anecdotal information to both the U.S. and academia as he could, with the general observations that the U.S. needed to modernize its air force to keep pace with a clearly rearming Germany. Lindbergh was allowed to visit Germany again in 1937 and was given unique access to some of the Luftwaffe's most cutting-edge aircraft, including the Messerschmitt ME-109 fighter and the Henkel 111 medium-range bomber. Lindbergh's American air attaché was prohibited from these tours, but Lindbergh took serious notes and again briefly personally traveled to Washington, D.C. to pass on a detailed presentation of his observations and the warning that the Luftwaffe's capability was formidable. As his respect for his German hosts grew, his respect for Britain dissipated. He and his wife's experience confirmed the country's obsession with class the couple mostly ignored by the military and political elite and presumed that the U.S. would again bail them out of any future European conflict involving Germany. Lindbergh was so alienated by life in Britain that he eventually decided to move to a small French island off the coast of Brittany known as Iliac. Much of this island was taken up by its only residence, a three-story stone house requiring a serious renovation that the Lindberghs most likely did not fully grasp when they made the decision to move in during the spring of 1938. In the midst of chaos wrought by workmen renovating the home and French household help that was very different in attitude and productivity in comparison to their more attentive American counterparts, Lindbergh got an invitation from the Soviet government to inspect its aircraft, perhaps an attempt to impress their potential German adversaries that they were making just as much progress on their own air force. Although his hosts rolled out the red carpet, Lindbergh and his wife were unimpressed, especially with the dismal state of Soviet manufacturing and aircraft. Of the country itself, Lindbergh subsequently wrote in a letter, Russian life is as close to hell on earth as it is possible for human beings to come. In late 1938, Lindbergh and his wife again traveled to Berlin at the request of the American ambassador, anxious to meet with Goering, and knowing that the Reichsmarschall would undoubtedly agree to attend any event where Lindbergh was present. However, upon arrival at a state dinner, Goering unexpectedly presented Lindbergh with a civilian award the Order of the German Eagle, commemorating the aviator's 1927 flight. Both Lindberghs were not happy with his presentation and understood that in late 1938, American media would be critical of such a decoration. But the medal was accepted with the explanation that it was one of hundreds the aviator had received. This news was followed up by actually accurate Rumors that Lindbergh intended to relocate his family to Berlin as a result of a desire to personally observe events in what he considered the most important city in Europe. Typically naive, Lindbergh did not understand that this desire would be depicted by American media as the action of an individual sympathetic to the Nazi regime. Sure enough, Lindbergh was openly lampooned, but the explosion of violence across Germany in November of 1938 
that came to be known as Kristallnacht persuaded Lindbergh that the environment was dangerously volatile. Still, the Roosevelt administration was concerned that Lindbergh might be exploited as a Nazi propaganda tool, and quietly Lindbergh was asked to return to the U.S. to serve briefly in the Army Air Corps, a request he could not refuse as a member of the Army Reserve. So concerned with any potential media crush upon his arrival by steamship in New York, Lindbergh had his family wait and return on a subsequent ship. His concerns proved well-founded, a photographer actually breaking down the door of Lindbergh's suite to snap a photograph, and the aviator having to have a police escort through a veritable gang of 200 journalists. Understanding that following his return to the U.S., war seemed imminent in Europe, Lindbergh rented a house for himself and his family on Lloyd Neck in a remote part of the north shore of Long Island. Sure enough, on September 1, 1939, the inevitable happened. Germany invaded Poland, and the continent was once again in flames. Most Americans were adamantly opposed to any U.S. involvement in another European war. But within the government, there was a not-so-subtle feeling that the U.S. should become involved. The only issue was how and when. Underlining both his personal concern and the stature that he still publicly enjoyed, Lindbergh felt compelled to give a speech that was nationally broadcast live on all three major American radio networks. In this speech, Lindbergh emphasized that he was not an isolationist, believed in the Monroe Doctrine, and that America should respond if attacked, but neutrality should be the American policy, and participation in another European war meant the inevitable loss of at least one and possibly several million American lives. With the 1940 presidential election approaching and Roosevelt running for a third term, there was serious talk again, especially among Republicans, of nominating Lindbergh as a presidential candidate. But Lindbergh continued to give radio speeches, essentially becoming more strident and accusing special interests, essentially Wall Street investment banks, of encouraging war for their material benefit. Considering that his father-in-law's fortune resulted from his J.P. Morgan partnership and many of Lindbergh's acquaintances also came from this industry, such comments were certainly not appreciated. But on September 11, 1941, Lindbergh crossed a line that provoked outrage, permanently marked him as an anti-Semite, and reinforced underlying skepticism that he was a Nazi sympathizer. Speaking in Des Moines, Iowa, at a typical America First rally, an organization of prominent public figures, including Henry Ford, the chairman of Sears Roebuck and Company, and Brigadier General Robert Wood, and North Dakota Senator Gerald Nye, the largest official entity opposing any American entry into the European conflict, Lindbergh delivered a speech focused on who exactly he believed was behind the push to eventually enter the war. Two were fairly predictable, the Roosevelt administration and the British, but the third group Lindbergh singled out were the Jews. Included in his remarks was the statement, It is not difficult to understand why Jewish people desire the overthrow of Nazi Germany. The persecution they suffered in Germany would be sufficient to make bitter enemies of any race. No person with a sense of the dignity of mankind can condone the persecution of the Jewish race in Germany, but no person of honesty and vision can look on their pro-war policy here today without seeing the dangers involved in such a policy both for us and for them. 
instead of agitating for war, the Jewish groups in this country should be opposing it in every possible way, for they will be among the first to feel its consequences. Tolerance is a virtue that depends upon peace and strength. History shows that it cannot survive war and devastation. A few far-sighted Jewish people realize this and stand opposed to intervention, but the majority still do not. Their greatest danger to this country lies in their large ownership and influence in our motion pictures, our press, our radio, and our government. Despite even his wife, who read the speech in advance and told him it would be a disaster, imploring him not to make such inflammatory statements, Lindbergh proceeded anyway. The result was predictable. Media, politicians, even members of the Roosevelt administration responded with outraged condemnation. Wendell Wilkie, the Republican presidential candidate, called the speech the most un-American talk made in my time by any person of national reputation. President Roosevelt did not personally comment on the speech, letting his press secretary officially reinforce a prevailing opinion, stating that the speech bore a, quote, striking similarity to the outpourings of Berlin in the last few days, unquote. Lindbergh's reputation was permanently damaged. His statements about and fascination with eugenics also already a matter of the public record. The America First Committee also suffered as a result, especially after the organization refused to denounce Lindbergh's remarks and did not expel him from the group. This organization and other non-interventionist efforts completely vaporized. Only months later, after the Pearl Harbor attack, America First actually officially dissolving only days after the Japanese aggression. Lindbergh, like many Americans, felt compelled to serve the country and requested that he be given back his status as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army Air Force. But the White House intervened, not only directing that this request be denied, but then also intimidating various business entities like Pan American from hiring Lindbergh as an aviation manufacturing consultant. Franklin Roosevelt's personal enmity dated back to a 1934 public scrap over the government nationalizing airmail routes, an intervention that Lindbergh very publicly and emphatically criticized. The only war-related employment that the aviator initially obtained was a consulting position offered by Henry Ford in his company's efforts to build and design the B-24 bomber. Ford had already defied the Roosevelt administration, and his participation in the war effort was too valuable to sacrifice over such a matter. Once again, Lindbergh uprooted his family and relocated to Michigan. But, possibly to demonstrate that he was as patriotic as any American, Lindbergh had his eye on active duty. His government enmity over his pre-war statements ebbed and the determination of the war effort intensified, Lindbergh was able to obtain another consulting position with United Aircraft, its Chance Vought division involved in the manufacture of the Corsair fighter bomber, Lindbergh eventually convincing management to deploy him on the front lines in the Pacific, initially serving as an instructor who offered pilots training on techniques to conserve fuel and operate with increased bombing capacity, he eventually talked his way into actual combat missions, the justification that he, a civilian, actually needed to be on combat missions to observe the plane's capabilities. In all, in six months in the South Pacific, in 1944, at age 42, Lindbergh took part in 50 combat missions and was even credited with shooting down an enemy plane. 
Once it became clear to the top brass that Lindbergh was engaging in such a dangerous activity, he was officially grounded. The concern over the possible consequences of his death, or even capture, extreme. Lindbergh's employment with Wright Aircraft ended with the conclusion of the war. He then participated in a lengthy official tour of France and Germany. This was the first extended period in which Anne and Charles Lindbergh were separated from each other, and the changes this separation prompted were profound. After giving birth for the sixth and final time on October 2, 1945, to a daughter, Reeve, made it clear that she was not enthusiastic about having any more children. She considered terminating her next pregnancy with an abortion. A miscarriage prevented such a drastic option. Although the couple uncharacteristically settled in an oceanfront property in Darien, Connecticut, that would be their permanent home, their relationship seemed to diverge, and from her subsequent extensively published journals, it is clear that Anne struggled to remain in the marriage. Charles Lindbergh's approach to this tension was predictably immersing himself in travel on behalf of either Pan Am, in which he eventually became a member of the board of directors, or the military, where he helped reorganize the Strategic Air Command. Communication in his marriage was non-existent. Lindbergh, notorious for disappearing for months at a time, no one in his family sure of exactly where he was. This lack of transparency was frequently written off as his need to keep secret whatever he was doing on behalf of the government. However, the desire for the secrecy eventually was necessitated by a very specific need to obscure exactly where Lindbergh was and what he was doing. These gaps did not seem to upset Ann Lindbergh, once telling a friend upon another prolonged absence, you know Charles, he'll be here when he's here. Later, both Lindberghs became more focused on issues surrounding wildlife preservation and spirituality. Having not published anything in over a decade, Ann's publication in 1955 of Gift from the Sea is written in an essay style and contains her reflections on many personal perspectives, especially love and marriage. It became the best-selling nonfiction book of the year and is still quite popular, having sold over three million copies and has been described as pre-feminist. Charles Lindbergh's 1954 The Spirit of St. Louis, a more thorough autobiographical account of his famous flight, was a Pulitzer Prize winner. However, gradually, the Lindberghs became known as practically reclusive, Charles Lindbergh especially averse to appearing on television, as he did not wish to make himself particularly recognizable. He did appear occasionally on live television during several Apollo missions, most notably Apollo 11. The couple refused almost all social invitations, spent part of the year in remote homes on Maui, near the town of Hanna, and at a chalet in Switzerland. Lindbergh's disillusionment over both modern society and aviation was embodied in his tireless work on behalf of the World Wildlife Federation, where he used his celebrity to intervene on behalf of both animals and even remote habitats peopled by Stone Age tribes like the Tassidae of the Philippines. Not surprisingly, after meeting a member of the Maasai tribe of Kenya, Lindbergh spent months living among these tribal warriors in the Maasai Mara Reserve. Although he remained affiliated with Pan Am, he refused to sign any kind of formal contract, unwilling to commit to any employment that restricted his ability to travel or explore at a moment's notice. In 1973, Lindbergh began rapidly losing weight, and he was diagnosed with lymphatic cancer, a development that was kept secret. His condition deteriorated steadily 
end in the summer of 1974, faced with the prospect of hospitalization that would only prolong his life for a matter of months, Lindbergh requested that he be flown to Maui, maintaining that two days in Hana was worth two months anywhere else. He died, age 72, eight days later. His wife and one son land at his bedside. Deliberately, he was buried within hours in a tiny churchyard in Kipahalu, Hawaii, overlooking the Pacific. His body, dressed in modest clothes, was placed in a simple coffin and interred after a brief ceremony involving close local friends and present family members. Anne Lindbergh began publishing her letters and journals in 1971, five volumes during the remainder of her lifetime, covering the years 1922 to 1944, and a posthumous collection published in 2012 concerning the years 1947 to 1986, edited by her youngest daughter, Reeve. As she grew older, Anne Lindbergh was incapacitated by a series of strokes and relocated to the home of her daughter in central Vermont. She died there, aged 94, on February 7, 2001. Anne Morrow's death should have ended the biography of this amazing couple's uniquely remarkable journey. But only months after Anne's death, a shocking coda was made public that could only be described as inconceivable. In mid-2003, at a news conference in Munich, Germany, three individuals, Dirk and David Hesheimer and Ingrid Hesheimer-Butiel, claimed that they were the illegitimate children of Charles Lindbergh, the result of a relationship between Lindbergh and their mother, Brigitte Hesheimer, that began in 1957. But even more astounding was the revelation that Lindbergh pursued relationships with Brigitte's sister, Marietta, as well as a mutual friend, Lindbergh's German administrative assistant and business translator, who is still only known publicly by her first name, Valeska, relationships that produced two more children each for a total of seven illegitimate children via three different women. Born in the late 50s and early 60s, when Lindbergh was between 55 and 65 years old, Lindbergh pursued these relationships with visits that occurred every six months or so, interacting with his offspring, but his children not knowing that he was even their father, much less Charles Lindbergh. He went by the pseudonym Carew Kent, was supposedly a special friend of their mother, involved in secret assignments that they were not allowed to discuss with anyone lest he not return. It was only with Ingrid's discovery of letters between Brigitte and Charles Lindbergh that the secret unraveled. Only ten days before his death, Lindbergh contacted all three of these women by letter, assuring them that they would still be financially supported and exhorting them to keep their mutual secret, a wish that they respected. Although Brigitte's children went public and even wrote a book that has never been published in the U.S., None of the other German Lindbergh family connections have ever discussed the situation. With a DNA confirmation within weeks of this revelation, a grandson of Charles Lindbergh providing his side of the family sample, the children of Charles Lindbergh provided the following statement, quote, The Lindbergh family is treating this as a private matter and has taken steps to open personal channels of communication with sensitivity to all concerned. Unquote. Except for a chapter in a collection of essays, Reeve Lindbergh is the only Lindbergh child to comment at length about the situation. Although she did acknowledge that it took time to get over her shock and anger, she and her brothers have accepted and interacted with her half-siblings in a very positive way. 
One sister, Anne, died before the development was made public. Perhaps Reeves' most enlightening comment about her father relative to this behavior was the observation that such an occurrence was predictable as, quote, no woman could have lived with him all of the time, unquote. Revelations of Anne Lindbergh's extramarital affair with her doctor, which began in the early 50s, indicate that by this time period, the Lindbergh marriage was a fundamentally divergent and deeply dysfunctional relationship. Appropriately, very little is specifically known about this bizarre last episode, even today. That is probably consistent with Lindbergh himself. Ultimately, much about him is an enigma. It is not surprising that late in his life, a man whose greatest achievement came at the controls of an airplane and who helped radically change the universe via aviation would say, If I had to choose, I would rather have birds than airplanes. I have seen the science I worshipped and the aircraft I loved, destroying the civilization I expected them to serve. The wild world is the human world. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Charles Lindbergh. Information for this podcast came from the books Loss of Eden by Joyce Milton, The Flight by Dan Hampton, and Forward from Here by Reeve Lindbergh. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical, and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People. Follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons, Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and please tell a friend about bite-sized biographies. Mm -hmm.